having uh, pointed out the uh, trouble that our self-grasping and self-cherishing uh, causes and identifying the, uh, that uh, self-cherishing and self-grasping underneath uh, the various problems and sufferings that uh, we have. Dhamma Rakshita uh, finishes the uh, section, this third section, with uh, the verses starting with 91. O Yamantaka, endowed with a blissfully gone Buddha's Dharmakaya, destroyer of the demon, the view of a true self, oh wow, oh you, with strength and force and possessing a skull-headed bludgeon, the sharp weapon of your actions of no true self, circle it three times around your head with no indecision. So this uh, skull-headed bludgeon is uh, representing the discriminating awareness of voidness or emptiness, and circle it three times as uh, in order to destroy the grasping for a truly established self, the self-cherishing that comes from that, and the samsaric body and five aggregates that come from them, which include the poisonous emotions. Because as we uh, looked at uh, before, with that uh, uh, unawareness, we don't know how things exist, We, uh, uh, our mind produces this uh, appearance of self-established existence, we don't understand, we don't know that it doesn't correspond to reality, we take it, we grasp at it to uh, exist, to correspond to reality, causes our disturbing emotions, it causes our destructive behavior, and uh, as a result of that, it builds up uh, karmic uh, aftermath, and that karmic aftermath gets uh, activated with uh, more <coughs> disturbing emotions, and uh, what it uh, produces or ripens into, among many other things, are the aggregates of our body, what we experience. So we experience uh, having a limited body, limited mind. We uh, continue to have the various tendencies and so on of the disturbing emotions, the three poisons. We continue to have the uh, uh, habit of grasping for a truly established existence and we uh, have, the, as a result of these potentials and tendencies, we uh, um, are uh, compulsively repeat similar actions to what we did in the past. We feel like doing it, and then that uh, leads to uh, more compulsive behavior, and we get into situations in which things happen to us. So we have the five aggregates. We the, uh, Dharma Rakshita goes on to complete this uh, section, the next three verses, 92, 3, and 4. We beseech you, free us from this enemy with your great ferocious force. We beseech you, smash this bad thought with your great discriminating awareness. We beseech you, protect us from karma with your great compassion. We beseech you, demolish this true self once and for all. As much suffering that there is in samsaric beings, heap it definitely, I beseech you, on my grasping at a true self. As much of the five poisonous disturbing emotions that there are in anyone, heap it definitely, I beseech you, on this one who is the same class. In other words, we want to have uh, practice this uh, Dong Len. And myself, you know, I have these poisonous emotions, so I'm in the same class as everybody else. Everybody is equal. 
throw it on me, I take it on myself to uh, deal with it, to dissolve it, to uh, change that poison into something that helps us on the path to enlightenment. And then he concludes this section, th- verse 30, 94, although we've identified through reason beyond any doubt the root of our faults like this, barring none, if you can expose any part of us that's still taking its side, we beseech you demolish that very one who's taking it. So the, uh, uh, just the initial understanding of uh, voidness is uh, not enough. The initial non-conceptual cognition of voidness is not enough. Uh, that's only the beginning. And we have to accustom ourselves more and more uh, with that so-called path of meditation or path of accustoming so that uh, uh, as I explained the more that we are able to focus non-conceptually on voidness it breaks the momentum of this uh, appearance making of truly established existence and eventually our mind will stop making it appear and we'll stop I mean first stop believing it and then make it stop it making it appear in uh, the fourth part, once we've destroyed the obstacles that prevent us from taking on these sufferings and their causes, these poisonous emotions and so on, and we've built up a network of positive force and deep awareness by uh, refraining from destructive behavior and acting in a positive way instead, now we have something that we can give in this giving and taking uh, process of Donglen. So, Verse 95, he starts this section, now having placed all the blame on one thing, that's this famous line that's repeated in the seven point uh, 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 mind training, says, now having placed all the blame on one thing, let's meditate strongly on kindness toward all beings. Having taken on our own mind streams what others never wished for, let's dedicate to every wandering being the roots from our constructive acts. So may they be anchored with these roots and uh, positive behavior, constructive behavior, and uh, understanding, and so on, so that uh, more positive potential will grow in them. Verse 96, by having taken on ourselves like that the negative consequences of what others have done over the three times through the three gateways of action, may the disturbing emotions be transformed into aids for enlightenment like peacocks having radiant color through feeding on poisonous plants. So, Dhammarakshita resumes this image of the peacock, and by having given to wandering beings the roots from our constructive acts, and like curing with medicine crows who have eaten poisonous plants, having saved them the life of liberation for all beings, may they quickly attain blissfully gone Buddhahood. So, we have this uh, dedication. This is the practice of uh, Dong Len. So when we've given them freedom from the worst states of uh, rebirth and the attainment of higher states of rebirth and then liberation and enlightenment, then uh, nevertheless, we uh, can't establish the existence of, uh, of any of this. You know, what we want to give them is the ultimate uh, antidote, the antidote to their own self-grasping and self-cherishing, which causes them to wander in samsaric rebirth. 
And so, uh, again, we uh, reaffirm this understanding of uh, voidness. You know, in this practice of Donglen, bringing in the further elaboration of it that we find in the seven-point uh, mind training, says that uh, we need to rest in the alaya, the uh, all-encompassing foundation. And uh, this needs to uh, be understood uh, properly. As I mentioned before, according to various commentaries, there's two interpretations of uh, what this uh, means, this alaya. It uh, is not the same as uh, what we have in the uh, mind-only school, the Chittamatra school. It's not the alaya vinyana, which is uh, the so-called storehouse or foundational consciousness, which is, according to the uh, Chittamatra theories, it has truly established from its own side, and it is unclear. Uh, it is uh, uh, neutral, it can go one way or the other, destructive or uh, constructive, and it is that uh, uh, level of uh, mind or mental activity that goes from one lifetime to another and has, uh, is the foundation <laughs> on which the various karmic tendencies and potentials and habits are uh, imputed. So that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, that. And that uh, Aliyah Vinyana can be interpreted in a Chittamatra way. There are many other interpretations that it's, uh, the term appears in. Uh, but uh, what we want to uh, rest in is just Aliyah. It's another term, this foundation for all. And uh, it refers to one aspect of uh, Buddha nature. When we talk about Buddha nature, Buddha nature is the various factors that everyone has as part of the mental continuum that will enable them to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha, particularly, specifically, to attain the enlightening bodies of a Buddha. So there are three different aspects of uh, Buddha nature that uh, are described. This is, comes a great deal in the uh, Uttara Tantra, the furthest everlasting stream, Yulama, in Tibetan. Great uh, text by Maitreya. And uh, in this, we speak about there are the evolving traits and the abiding traits and the fact that the mental continuum can be stimulated, can be influenced with the enlightening influence of a Buddha. So the evolving traits are the uh, two collections it's usually translated as. I prefer to call them networks because uh, they are made of many different aspects that network together. So the network of positive force sometimes called the collection of merit, and uh, this uh, gives rise normally to uh, our, um, you can also think of a network of negative potential as well, but uh, we specify here the positive potential, 
and it gives rise to bodies and the aggregates and it gives rise to your behavior, uh, your instinctive behavior, what you encounter, uh, etc. And uh, uh, the ordinary happiness and what we want it to give rise to instead, I mean, that has the potential when it's built up and dedicated with uh, bodhicitta to give rise to instead of an ordinary body, form body of a Buddha, uh, instead of uh, samsara type of uh, behavior mixed with confusion, we have enlightening activity of a Buddha, instead of our ordinary happiness we have the blissful mind of a Buddha, instead of an impure environment we have a pure environment. So that is the result of this uh, purification and uh, um, growth with bodhicitta of uh, this aspect of Buddha nature. So it is evolving the network of positive forces, the network of deep awareness, which is built up uh, more and more with our continued non-conceptual cognition of voidness. We can also speak of it in terms of the five types of deep awareness, mirror-like and you know, equalizing and so on. There's many ways of uh, looking at this. Uh, and this will give rise to the mind, the omniscient mind of a Buddha that knows, you know, all things. Uh, you need the two of these. So this evolves, you know, we build up these collections more and more. But then there's the abiding nature of the mind. This is the abiding Buddha, the nature of Buddha factors. And the abiding Buddha factors are referring to the conventional and deepest nature of the mind. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about alaya. So what, uh, the fact that the, it abides in the sense that it is the case both in samsara and nirvana. So that stays the same. Mental continuum, you know, from the conventional point of view, what is it? It's the arising, uh, I mean, it's referred to as clarity and awareness or mere clarity and awareness. Clarity means what is the mental uh, activity. The mental activity is giving rise to mental holograms, appearances, and that is what it means to have, to know something, to cognize something, is to give rise. It's not that first a thought arises and then you think it. It's the same process, the same activity, and merely means that it's only that. There's no separate me that is observing it or trying to control it or stuff like that. So it's non-dual. Uh, from uh, its nature. So what, uh, and this is the case whether we have a mind which is, uh, or mental activity, which is uh, under the influence of unawareness, and has self-grasping and self-cherishing and so on, it's still the mere arising of mental holograms and uh, uh, cognition or we're an omniscient Buddha, it's the same nature, it stays the same. It's not tainted, it's, they say, by the fleeting stains of these disturbing emotions and so on. And its deepest nature is that it's devoid of existing in an impossible way. It's not self-established. You talk about uh, Alia Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness in uh, mind-only school, Chittamatra school, they assert that it is self-established. But uh, from a Buddha nature point of view, the deepest uh, uh, presentation of it in Madhyamaka, it's not self-established. 
But anyway, the fact that it is not self-established as being, you know, either samsaric or nirvanic or stuff like that means that the transformation can take place. The Buddha nature, the evolving Buddha nature factors can give rise to the bodies of a Buddha. And the so-called nature bodies, Svabhava Bhakaya, stays the same, this nature of the mind. And this third Buddha nature factor, the fact that the mind can be influenced by the enlightening influence, the Buddha activity of a Buddha, so it can be stimulated to grow. That is another Buddha nature factor. So these evolving factors can be stimulated, given a boost by uh, the rays of the sun. Is the uh, way in which uh, it's described in the text. So what we want to do is to rest in that nature of the mind, this Buddha nature factors, the abiding Buddha nature factors. So there's two interpretations of that in terms of how we want to uh, meditate. Both of them are equally effective. We can meditate in terms of the resting in the conventional nature of the mind or the deepest nature of the mind and different philosophical positions will call both of the one that I just described as the deepest nature some will make the differentiation these are just names uh, the point is to understand what it's actually talking about what it's talking about is you know as I said, if we speak in terms of rising of a, of a mental hologram and awareness, then this is like waves on the ocean. So it's the nature, you know, when we have these poisonous attitudes and so on, it's just a wave on the ocean, it will settle down. And whether it's a wave or it's a calm ocean and so on, it's not self-established. So. We have this presentation of how we settle down. And uh, we need to understand that uh, when we speak in terms of uh, voidness or emptiness, this absence of self-established existence, that doesn't mean that nothing exists. Everything arises dependently, dependently Dependent arising has uh, three levels of meaning. Things arise dependently, you know, impermanent things, things that change arise dependently on causes and conditions. So samsara, samsaric body, things like this, they arise dependent on causes and conditions, on unawareness and mother, father, you know, these sort of things. Uh, all things whether it uh, is static or non-static, whether it changes or doesn't change, are dependent on parts. So dependent arising from that point of view, and then dependent arising uh, in terms of mental labeling, which uh, means that uh, not that your these categories, conceptual thought creates things, it doesn't create things. You know, whether I have a concept of uh, pain or not, still you feel something. Still things uh, function, so it doesn't create things. But 
what things conventionally are can only be established dependently on what concepts and names for them that are conventionally accepted refer to. So this is the third level of what uh, dependent arising means. And although things uh, appear to be self-established, that is like an illusion, it's deceptive. It appears like that, but it doesn't really correspond to reality. As I was saying, things, the actuality is that things dependently arise. We can only establish them in terms of dependence on causes and conditions, parts, and what the names and concepts refer, for them refer to. So Dharma Rakshita says, hey, those like me, all of those are things that dependently arise, and what relies on dependently arising cannot be self-supporting, self-established. Changing into that over there and changing into this over here, their false appearances are an illusion. They are reflections that merely appear like a whirling firebrand, like a plantain tree, our life force has no core. Like a bubble, our lifespan too has no core. Like a fog having descended, there are things that disperse. Like a mirage, there are things that are beautiful just from afar. Like reflections in a mirror, they seem so real, so real. Like a cloud or a mist on a mountain, they seem to stay and to stay. So this is uh, just a, a poetical way of uh, expressing what uh, we've been discussing, that uh, things appear to have a, a core, which means something inside them that establishes them. And this is what uh, voidness is refuting, saying that there is no such thing you know, from the side of the object, like inside a core that uh, makes it stand up. You know, things are not like blank cassettes or uh, screens that are mind, you know, that they're truly established on their own side, like blank cassettes or something like that, and our mind projects different things on them. That's another wrong view. It's not like that. It's not that there's something there, but what it is and you know, the name that we call it and the qualities that we call it are projected from the mind that the thing itself is there established from its own side but nothing is like that either it appears like that you know one level of understanding would lead us to think like that you know there's just me but that me in this lifetime has this name, and that lifetime has that name, and so on. The me is sort of neutral. Well, you know, neutral, solidly established thing. It's not like that either. So it appears like that. But even what it is, you know, if you think about uh, from a scientific point of view, we have, you know, uh, atoms, and then you have uh, subatomic particles, and you have waves and energy fields, and so on, and there's no solid boundary around anything, is there? Things aren't encapsulated in plastic. They don't have, you know, they're not like a 
child's coloring book in which you have lines around things that make it into a thing separate from what's around it. You know, it's another level of dependent arising. Things are in a context. Our emotions, if you think about it, this wonderful example, how do you differentiate the various emotions that we feel at the same time, the mental factors? We could have anger or we could have desire, but at the same time there's some level of concentration, there's some level of attention, they might not be very strong, <laughs> there are some level of interest, there's some level of unawareness, ignorance, there's some level of grasping, it could be mixed with some level of love, you know, that uh, I love you but I'm really attached. <laughs> and there's some exaggeration that's going on and we're only dis distinguishing certain aspects of the person how do you differentiate all of that? it's not as though they are each separate encapsulated in plastic with a big line around them are they? they are interactive, they are interdependent, yet conceptually we can isolate them. It's called a conceptual isolate, a technical term, which is literally nothing other than what it is. So conceptually we can isolate that and give it a name, but in actuality it's all interdependent, isn't it? But the appearance is that it's self-establishing, one sort of solid thing, you know, a bad mood, something like that. It's made up of all these pieces and they're all changing all the time. So all these various images are uh, used here of a plantain tree. It's a type of tree that just has concentric rings of sort of bark, but there's no middle in it. Bubble, fog, mirage, reflections in a mirror, and so on. So, this is the case regarding the self as well, the impossible self, a truly established one. Verse 107, this butcher, a true self, the enemy is like that. <laughs> Seeming like it exists and exists, it never has existed at all, the false me. Seeming like it is true and true, it's never been experienced as true anywhere. Seeming like it appears and appears, it's beyond being an object that can be added or taken away. If something doesn't exist at all, this false me, you can't, you know, add it on to something or take it away from something. It was never there. We just imagined that it was there. And our mind projected some sort of appearance that represented it, that seemed like it. It's not that our mind generates truly established existence and projects it. 
It projects something that is like it. You can't create something that doesn't exist. You can create, <laughs> let's say, you can create an image of Father Christmas, of Santa Claus. You can't actually create Santa Claus. Something that represents something that doesn't, the Easter Bunny or whatever, <laughs> Mickey Mouse. That's what we are projecting. We're projecting something that represents something that is nonsense, doesn't exist. So it's also the case with all phenomena. This demonstrates now that uh, this text is not a Hinayana text, a Vibhashika text, despite Dharmarakshita being a specialist in explaining Vibhashika, because we also have the voidness, the understanding of voidness of, uh, of, the, uh, of karma, of the disturbing emotions, and so on. Verse, uh, is it? 108. Whatever sharp weapons of karma that that butcher possesses, although they too lack self-establishing natures, like this enemy does, so all phenomena are devoid of truly established existence, not just the self. Nevertheless, they dawn like the reflection of the moon in a full cup of water. These karmic causes and effects are assorted displays that are false, yet, this is very important, while being mere appearances, hey, I tell you, we must accept and reject the appropriate actions. This is this nevertheless clause. Although things appear to be truly established and they're not, they're devoid of existing in that way, there is no such thing as a reality that corresponds to things wrapped in plastic generating themselves independently of everything else. Nevertheless, things function. So we need to accept and reject the appropriate actions. Reject destructive behavior based on the three poisonous emotions. Reject that and accept the behavior that is based on the opposite of them and with understanding. So it's important not to fall to the nihilist extreme of thinking that just because conventional truth, conventional truth of things, the superficial truth, the appearance, is a deceptive appearance of being self-established, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist at all. If it didn't exist, then cause and effect wouldn't operate. You know, just imagine that you're, if you just thought that you didn't, that, you know, your suffering didn't exist and you didn't exist, then you'd be free of all your problems. Well, you're not. So you continue to create problems for yourself. So that's an incorrect understanding. Realizing that everything is like an illusion, we need to reject destructive behavior and wrong views and accept constructive behavior and right views. Cause and effect still operate, although they're like an illusion. So, Dhammarakshika goes on, 109, when in the dream world there blazes an eon-ending fire in a dream. Though it lacks a self-establishing nature, yet we're still terrified. Likewise, though what occurs in the joyless hell realms and the likes lack self-establishing natures, 
Yet because of fear of being boiled, burned, and so forth, we need to abandon their karmic cause. When we're delirious with a fever, even though there's no darkness, we feel like we're passing into a deep, long cavern and suffocating. Likewise, although unawareness and so on lack self-establishing natures, we must clear away their delirium with the three types of discriminating awareness. That's the discriminating awareness that comes from listening to the teachings or reading them so that we discriminate between what are the What's, what are the correct words and what are the incorrect words? This was uh, especially important when listening to the teachings that were memorized. You know, the texts, the words of the Buddha were passed on by memory in the early centuries. So you had to be sure that what you heard was, was correct, you know, very often. And what the person was reciting was correct. So this discriminating awareness. Because very often somebody says something and we hear something different. We don't remember it correctly. So this discriminating awareness from listening that you got, you actually got the correct teachings. You know, this is what it says. And then the discriminating awareness from thinking is that you correctly understand what it means. That you get by thinking it over, analyzing it, and so on. Then we get that uh, discriminating awareness from understanding, and then the discriminating awareness from meditating, which means that we've accustomed ourselves to it so that we actually apply it properly in our lives. So we discriminate in that sense, you know, have we really internalized it? So three types of discriminating awareness. Goes on, 114, when we experience any happiness or suffering as a karmic result, it isn't by means of the first instance of its cause, and it isn't by means of the last instance, and so forth. We experience happiness and suffering through a dependently arisen accumulation. Yet while being mere appearances, hey, I tell you, we must accept and reject the appropriate actions. Things arise dependently on Parts, causes and conditions and parts, one after another. This is some of the basic teachings on karma, that uh, a result doesn't come from just one cause, but from a network of many causes and conditions. And one cause doesn't necessarily give rise to just one result. It gives rise to a whole network of consequences that follow from things. So dependent on parts. And as Buddha said, a bucket is not filled by the first drop or the last drop, it's filled by the accumulation of drops. So we've built up various causes over many, many lifetimes. And what we experience is the, you know, the ripening of a whole accumulation of causes because there's so many things are ripening at the same time. We have a karmic tendency, so we feel like doing something, but there's also a tendency of disturbing emotion. So some aspect of that's going to ripen, you know, at the same time, and some level of attention or concentration is going to be ripening. All the mental factors have tendencies, and they all 
have different strengths and different aspects, different conditions are going to affect you know, something could be annoying us, but we could be very sleepy at the same time. So, that's another condition that affects how we respond. So all these sort of, you know, all the parts, nothing is just, you know, solid like that. The big network of many things. 115. Wow, these appearances of pleasant things which unexamined seem to exist as if all alone have no core, and yet these things still appear as if truly existing. That's profound, but it's difficult for the lesser minded to see, which it is, obviously. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, nothing is easy, so, or not so obvious. So we need to meditate on both conventional and deepest bodhicitta and in that way attain enlightenment. So the uh, Dharma Rakshita concludes the final verse by practicing conventional bodhicitta and deepest bodhicitta like that and bringing to completion without interruption our buildup of the two enlightening networks. May we attain the splendor of enlightenment fulfilling the two aims, one's own purposes, as we can help others, we need an omniscient mind, dharmakaya, and the purposes of others. So appearing in various forms that will help others. And for others, they will appear to be self-established. That doesn't matter. Even though to them, it will appear like a deceptive appearance, nevertheless, we can help them, we can inspire them. inspire their own Buddha nature factors, these, you know, positive potentials and so on to ripen so that they act in a more positive way, they get more understanding and so on. So this is the text, the Wheel of Sharp Weapons. In the end, what we want to uh, give others in this Donglen practice is this understanding of the two truths. Understand that, you know, on a superficial, conventional level, things appear to be self-established. They have something inside them, you know, that makes them what they are from their own side, independently of everything else. But that's just a deceptive appearance. Nevertheless, they function. Nevertheless, conventional things, we act in a destructive way, it brings suffering. We act in a positive way, it brings our ordinary happiness. If we act in a positive way together with bodhicitta and dedicate it, then it can contribute to <coughs> our enlightenment. We want to give that understanding to others, and we want to give understanding of the deepest truth. So that's with bodhicitta, with conventional bodhicitta, I want to help them, so this is how I'm going to help them through conventional appearances. And I'm also going to help them with deepest bodhicitta, may they have the understanding of voidness as well. So when we take on these poisonous uh, emotions of others, 
We dissolve them into this all-encompassing basis or foundation, the alaya. And then on that, uh, you know, fr- within that state, whether we look at it from the point of view of there are basic qualities of that state, you know, of uh, um, happiness, compassion, you know, bliss, these sort of things to give this to others, or it has uh, the deep awareness, the so-called pristine deep awareness, is part of the nature of the mind, that, you know, we give that. Or we do it in a more, what should we say? We've built these things up, we have potential for them. There's many ways of explaining it. But uh, only when we get down to that very basic level are we able to make that transition from the sadness of feeling the pain and difficulties that everybody has with something like that disturbing emotion. It's not that we become you know, furiously angry or we become stupid. But we imagine it and then we give these positive things to others. So we have quite a bit of time left over. Why don't we just take a few minutes to settle down, think about these things, and then we have plenty of time for questions or discussion.
Okay. One thought came to me that uh, when we are practicing Donglen with the uh, three poisonous uh, emotions, taking them on from others, that uh, this, of course, needs to be accompanied by compassion. May they be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And it reminded me of the three types of uh, compassion that uh, Chandrakirti speaks of, that uh, they have these three poisons, and first of all, the compassion that uh, they're, they're suffering, and they don't even realize that they're suffering. So you take that from them. You want to give them that realization of what is suffering, that you know, when you're really lustful and you know, completely filled with that emotion, or angry, or naive, that uh, really is not a very happy state of mind. And then the second level is uh, in terms of impermanence. You know, when they're experiencing these disturbing emotions, they don't recognize and understand that it's impermanent, and they themselves are impermanent. It's changing all the time. So you want to give them that understanding of impermanence. And then voidness. You know, they don't understand the voidness of what they're experiencing and that they're void. And that's really sad, isn't it? They don't understand that. And so we want to take that on. Take, you know, remove that cause from them and give them the understanding of voidness. So these different levels of compassion mixed with so-called compassion and wisdom are very helpful in our practice of compassion. To understand that they themselves are suffering, they themselves, you know, are impermanent, they themselves are devoid of existing. Truly it's not as though, you know, truly existent me, non-dualistically, is going to help, you know, the poor thing over there, suffering creature. But this understanding of suffering, impermanence, voidness, we need to have on all levels that the object of our compassion has these characteristics. Compassion itself has these characteristics. We have those characteristics. We want to be able to give the antidotes to that, this correct understanding to everyone. Okay, what uh, questions might you have? Yeah. Somebody have the microphone? It's on. Yesterday we talked among many things about helping others. And um, today, the focus on the real enemy that we have this belief in there is a truly existing self. So then I think uh, I, I, it's very useful for me. But if um, I have occasions when I meet people that are rather depressed, and uh, even if I think this has to do with uh, believing there is an 
existing cells. I cannot say that. I, I, it could easily be you to blame you. I cannot say that. But how? What I do do is to ask them. Yeah, more uh, try to differentiate all the feelings. What are you sad for? What are you angry for? And all that. But how can I use this knowledge uh, we've been going through in helping others? The main focus in this type of uh, practice is using this knowledge to help us to overcome the hesitation that we have on our side to help them. We don't want to help them because we're thinking too much about me, me, me. I'm busy, I have other things to do, I don't feel like it. It's too difficult, it's too messy. So what we want to do is to work on our own you know, the hindrances that come from our side, that doesn't mean that we necessarily start to teach them about voidness. Certainly not. It's one of the bodhisattva vows that you don't teach voidness to those who are unprepared. They would misunderstand it. So you see, you know, when somebody is depressed and discouraged about life, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, you know, hope is the best antidote to depression, that you point out, you know, at least something that's going okay in your life. And you start to, you know, put more emphasis on the positive than the negative of what's going on in their life. And then Shantideva's general advice, if it's something that you can change, why, you know, feel badly about it, just change it. And if there's nothing you can do, why I feel badly about it? Because it's not going to help. It's a very profound teaching. You know, the plane is delayed. There's absolutely nothing you can do about that. So why are you upset? All it's going to do is make you miserable and unhappy. Not so easy to implement. However, that's the you know, that's the way to deal with it. You know, there's nothing I can do, so I have to accept it. Make the best of it, you know, I can use mm -hmm. it to read, to listen to music, to talk to somebody, do something. So like that, help them to change a negative circumstance into a positive one. More general mind training, teaching. Um, thank you. I would like to refer back to verse 105, um, which is about the life force which has no core and all the other things that have no core. Mm -hmm. Okay, that I understand because it is all the appearance and so on. But um, so it also say our lifespan has no core. Fine, yes, but. Then where should we, how should we see what you call the mental continuum, our Buddha nature? I know it's not a core, but 
Because it's not of us, but how should we look at this? Well, Buddha nature, remember, is not just one thing. There are various factors which will allow us to attain the bodies of a Buddha. Definition. So these are, when you talk about the evolving factors, these two networks, well, it is an imputation. They're imputations on you know, the basis of what we've done in the past, you know, cause and effect. Mm-hmm. We have va- various uh, positive actions, various uh, uh, meditations and periods of understanding, Four Noble Truths and Two Truths, etc. And uh, then there are things that it will ripen into, the effect. But at the moment, in between, as an imputation, there is a tendency, a potential. But that potential is not something that, you know, the the defining characteristic is not found in the basis of imputation, to put it in technical jargon. So that's like if we use the example of self. Is there some defining characteristic of me that makes me me? Well, where is it? Is it in my hand? Is it in my emotions? Is it in my personality? Where is it? Even if you say it's in the DNA, well, if you just have a model of a DNA, is that me? You know, I mean, this is... So, that defining characteristic of what's imputed is not found in the basis. So it's referring to no core. So likewise, this imputation of these networks, there's no, you know, the whole network, this potential you can't find in the mental continuum, the defining characteristic there. Chittamatra says yes, you know, the, the mind-only school, defining characteristic of the me is in the alia, vinyana. But uh, according to Madhyamaka, no. According to Prasangika Madhyamaka, no. Defining characteristic is not on the side of, you know, the mental continuum. Mental continuum, moment to moment to moment to moment, only one moment is happening at any time. And as an imputation, you have these potentials, that aspect of Buddha nature. You have the voidness of it. You have its conventional nature. But what establishes that this is their conventional nature and that it is voidness? Again, it's only in terms of what the word and concept voidness refers to. Voidness itself is not something like a black hole inside of the object. The defining characteristic of mental activity 
Mere clarity and awareness isn't some sort of thing that is sitting inside each moment and making it, you know, with a little label, I am <laughs> mere clarity and awareness. You know, that's not there. So things have no core, meaning uh, not that it has no center, but it has nothing that is, you know, holding it up from its side, deep inside it. So this can be a self-establishing nature. So things are not established by a self-establishing nature. So I just call that not self-established. Even their essential nature, these are different words in Tibetan, by the way, but even their essential nature, which is what they are, even that doesn't, you know, their conventional defining characteristic doesn't establish them as that by its own power. And the defining characteristic doesn't establish it. Establish this word is the same word as affirmation. I mean, it's related to the same word to affirm it, to affirm that this is what it is. We're not talking so much uh, with uh, voidness in terms of how does something exist, more in terms of how do you establish that it exists. You know, how do you establish, how do you know that it exists? Well, it does something, therefore it exists, would be the initial understanding. It hurts, therefore there is pain. Well, certain truth to that. However, it appears as though this truly established wound is hurting. So there's something not so deep our understanding of it. I, what establishes that it exists? I, I perceive it. Well, we also perceive nonsense. So that doesn't necessarily establish or prove. It's another variation of the same word, to establish, to affirm, to prove. What proves that it exists? The only thing that proves that it exists or establishes that it exists, well, we have a concept, everybody agrees with it, there are words for it, and it refers to something that we experience. But it's not sort of sitting there like these blank you know, screens and we're projecting everything onto it. It's not like that. And all of this requires, you know, really quite a lot of reflection and digestion and not just in a theoretical type of way, but to try to see it in our lives. In terms of me, that's the, you know, where we should focus in the beginning. You know, we tend to think that, uh, you know, I'm 
really annoyed with you because you know you did this and you did that and then we tend to uh, uh, analyze if we start to work with voidness that you know well who is it that I'm angry with and what is it that I'm angry with they said you know there's a whole string of words and uh, you know the action is divided you know divided into all the little parts you know they move their hand here and then move their hand here and then move their hand here so what is it that I'm angry with? The problem with that is that you're still left with a strong self-attachment to the me. You know, so I'm not angry with this, but then I'll be angry at the next thing. <laughs> so it's important to first deconstruct not the object of the anger, but me, who's feeling this anger. You know, what's going on at this moment when I, you know, when there is anger? And then you think of the five aggregates. Well, you know, it's, there's the seeing of this, there's mental, you know, there's the hearing of, of sounds, of words of somebody, there's seeing a certain action, there's you know, physical sensation of being hit or something like that. And there is, you know, I'm distinguishing it from the temperature of the room. <laughs> and I am, uh, you know, there's anger, there's attention. I'm paying really a lot of attention to this. There's concentration, very awake. Many, many pieces, parts. So the me is imputed on all of that, but where is the me? There's no me that's separate from that, that is experiencing this. If the me were encapsulated in plastic and all these things that are going on over here are also encapsulated in plastic, I mean, that's classic duality. How can there be any connection between them? You know, is there like a a cable between them in which the information gets, you know, transmitted. I mean, it's silly. But I'm not any one of them. You know, where is the me? You know, the defining characteristic of me in any of this. So you start to analyze like that in our experience. And it's only when we start to work with it and experience some effect from it that we start to really become convinced. First you work with it logically and then experientially. Logically first so that you're convinced that it is reasonable, that it's not crazy. You don't want to start applying something that you think is crazy. So first you use logic. Like that. And it takes time. Our negative neural pathways are very, very deeply embedded. Even if we think only in terms of this lifetime, been going on 
since we were infants, let alone previous lives. And it's almost biologically wired into us, you know, these so-called tainted aggregates, you know, the instinct for self-preservation, very strong. Me, me, me. So it always says that uh, that false me you can recognize, you know, the easiest in moments of very strong emotion. Classic example is, you know, when somebody accuses us of something that uh, we haven't done. You're a thief. You stole something. And then you go, what, me? No, I didn't do that. Then it comes really strong, this uh, sense of a, of a me, separate from everything else. How dare you say that to me? <coughs> but then we need to be able to, I mean, at a really advanced level, do don't let at that time. And everybody else who's, you know, thinking so strongly, you know, such emotion. Anyone else? Yeah. <coughs> yes. Uh, can I give some advice about uh, helping others? Um, <coughs> what we are talking about this uh, a lot. Uh, there are people who. Uh, who needs help, who tell you to get lost. Who tell you what? Who tell you to go away and get lost. Yeah. Because they don't want to help. Uh, <coughs> and there mm -hmm. are people who, who uh, say they need help, uh, but they only want to talk because they are lonely and maybe they want to raise their own ego. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the millionaire across the street, which you feel, whom you feel sorry for because of his or her lack of spiritual input. You have people who are starving to death. Um, <laughs> the most obvious for me would, would, would be to send all my money to, to people who are starved to death. Uh, we are living in a rich country, and uh, on which level should I uh, help others in daily life? Life is short and the, the, uh, the time is short also. Um, can you use some advice about helping others? It seems obvious, but... Uh, well, as I, as I explained previously, sharing with you the advice that uh, actually His Holiness the Dalai Lama gave me, when I said, you know, there's so many different areas that I can work in to uh, help others. You know, what should I focus on? And he said, what you are most qualified to do, there aren't very many other people doing it, and there are others that are receptive to your help. And then Ringu Tuku added, well, you, it's something you enjoy as well. It's okay if you add that on top of it. So you see, where can you be the most effective? What is it that you're most qualified to give? Let's say if you're a doctor, 
you can give medical help. That's much more important than, you know, helping somebody put up a tent. So, uh, although they need help in putting up the tent, but uh, if you can help them medically, better to do that. Especially if there aren't very many doctors around. If there's a ton of doctors around, then that's something else. And if they're receptive, if they're not receptive, you know, even Buddha can help them. You know, the Buddhist saying, you know, you can only, the sun shines equally to everybody, but to be warmed by the sun, you have to come out into the sunshine. Yes, uh, I was volunteering for the Red Cross for some time and helping people uh, to, to get a normal life when they come out from prison. Uh, because I, I think it was um, uh, a little bit frustrating uh, about uh, giving help that really didn't uh, do any difference. So uh, for me, that was uh, a little. I, I tried to make some help where the help was most needed. Mm -hmm. But I think I understand your point about uh, do what you do best at all levels, really. Uh, yeah, what we're qualified to do. I mean, I don't know how to fix a car. I mean, I, you know, I can't help somebody fix a car. Is that really help? If they're stuck and it's really cold, yes. <laughs> so, you know, you do what is, what is necessary. You know, uh, whatever you're capable of doing. You know, might not be able to help fix the car, but I might have a spare blanket I could give them yeah, if it's I cold. Used an, I used to be an electrician, and I was a little bit tired about fixing the wires. Right. I didn't feel that that was really a help for most people. Because they needed spiritual uh, help, I felt <laughs> more or less. <clears throat> First, if people are, you know, if you look at the teachings on the so-called lower realms, the states of, you know, worse situations of suffering. First you want to alleviate them of the gross suffering. If somebody is starving, you don't go, you know, start teaching them a prayer. You want to give them food. So you have to start on a material level. If their physical suffering is too intense, they're not receptive to any spiritual advice, not at all. So skillful means. I think a great deal of uh, the skill in helping others is taking in the information. Try to get as much information. See what is their situation, what is available. Find out all the, the information. See what, what really is troubling them. These are the five types of deep awareness that mirror like take in the information, equalize it, fit it into, you know, what you know, you know, the patterns, individualize it, you know, well, the specific person, you know, it's not just one size fits all. Accomplishing awareness, you know, the, the willingness to actually do something to see, you know, what will apply that will help. And then Dharma Dhatu, you know, what is it? How does it exist? You know, you not freak out that you know, oh, you know, it's such a horrible problem. So, using these teachings on the five types of so-called Buddha wisdom, 
five types of deep awareness indicate how you actually help in terms of you know, your, your state of mind. If you haven't taken in all the information, you don't understand what the problem is. So you ask, you look, you observe, you see. And you have to have some basis of your experience so that you can fit it in. So you have some idea of what to do, but individualize it to this person, not just, you know, take it out of the book. You know, this is what you do. And be willing to actually do something and don't freak out. Yeah, anyone else? Yeah. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, differentiates three areas within Buddhism. There's Buddhist science, Buddhist philosophy, and Buddhist religion. 
and uh, Buddhist science deals with the analysis of uh, the mind, the emotions, perception, logic, these sort of things. Buddhist philosophy deals with uh, the view of reality, which is quite close to that of quantum physics, and then Buddhist religion, which deals with karma, rebirth, different realms, and so on. And he says that uh, Buddhist science and Buddhist philosophy are things that uh, anybody can benefit from, that is not necessary at all to delve into Buddhist religion, that's for Buddhists. But uh, the teachings you know, of Buddhism in science and philosophy are things which can be beneficial to everyone. And he's sponsored a, uh, a project to take from the Buddhist scriptures those uh, and the Buddhist commentaries, Indian ones, those texts that deal with science and philosophy, have them made, you know, made into a collection and translated to various languages. I think this is a, a very appropriate um, way of looking at it, a very helpful way of looking at it. The scheme that I have uh, been using, came up with, was uh, Dharma light and real thing Dharma. You know, Dharma light is uh, a light version of uh, the Dharma without rebirth and uh, without the hell realms and these sort of things. The general teachings of, you know, Buddhist analysis of the mind and general teachings on uh, reality and so on. And as long as you call, you know, you don't call the light version of Buddhism the real thing, and that this is all that Buddhism has, and you deny that Buddha spoke about, you know, that the teachings uh, include the, the six realms and, you know, all these other beings and uh, stuff like that. You know, that's there. And, uh, uh, you know, that's the real thing if you want it. And there are many reasons why it's necessary in terms of understanding that uh, cause and effect. You know, unless you have beginningless mind, then you have so many, you know, absolutely illogical things of how cause and effect work. That things start from nothing and they end with nothing. Then how can a nothing become a something? So there are a lot of problems with that. Nothing can't become a something. Something's truly nothing. So that has, you know, in terms of consequences of behavior, cause and effect, is very important. So there are reasons why, you know, there are shortcomings, I should put it this way, of not including that in your light version. Karma is not going to make much sense. And if you uh, don't include these other realms, you know, what we're saying is that, you know, these other realms, that the spectrum of happy and unhappy, you know, and pleasure and pain, if you want to take it on a sensory level, it's not just limited to what the hardware of a human body can experience, but there's, the spectrum is much larger. You know, the human body 
goes unconscious when the pain and suffering is too much. But one could imagine a body that doesn't shut down. You can go much further on the scale of horrible pain and unhappiness. So it opens us up to, you know, not just thinking of the limitations of human hardware and develop more compassion. But as long as one, as I say, has the proper, you know, don't confuse things, don't be unfair to the Buddhist teachings by saying that it's only meditation, it's only mindfulness, it's only, you know, be a nice person, and so on. You know, there are certain basic factors that, uh, you know, make it a Buddhist teaching. You can't just drop them in terms of the real thing. You know, the four hallmarks of the Dharma, suffering and permanent, selfless, nirvana is peace. The basic things. So it's there. So we have one last question and then we must end. too big a question to end with, but uh, <laughs> so you just tell me. <laughs> but uh, I was uh, thinking when you were earlier talking about these boxes. Yeah. Uh, and I've been uh, contemplating this a bit in terms of the, um, the 12 uh, interdependent links, mm-hmm. which is uh, it's sort of it's presented as uh, there's a it looks like something is happening in sequence. Um, as you say, but it's uh, I know that by uh, it's 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 not. But when I, when you're contemplating, for example, you have this. Uh, uh, you were talking about like turning over to to love, for instance, or when is something uh, when is something a, a thought and when is something a, a feeling. So uh, what what triggers the other thing. Uh, so, for instance, you could think that that thought would trigger a feeling. Or, on the other hand, that uh, the feeling would... By feeling, do you mean emotion? Or yeah. feeling meaning that you sincerely feel that things are impermanent? Well, I would think emotions in this regard. Uh, like, that you, in, in terms of the 12 interdependent links, you have this reaction. Right, the feeling is a reaction to something. But then, um, I don't know, like, could you ex- or, or enlighten us a bit on this? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm clear, but... Uh, uh, okay, thank you. Um, for me... Well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by, if you're talking about feeling mm. in the 12 links, that's feeling a level of happy or unhappy. It's not feeling an emotion. See, our word feeling in Western languages is much too broad, has too many meanings. 
but thinking and uh, I mean what is thinking that's a very vague word isn't it well, you know I we can then, but you, you, you can sometimes discover that you, you you have a reaction to something that happens to you and then this reaction you can this triggers a stream of thought yeah and then again that's through you say uh, some sort of a feeling of uh, dislike for example well, I don't know that uh, uh, thinking you're a terrible person and then feeling angry whether they're consecutive, whether they're simultaneous I think that's a little bit difficult to say. You can only say that they're dependently, they dependently arise Can you think that, you know, you're a terrible person, but not be upset or angry? You could think that uh, what you did was destructive and not be angry with it. But in the thought with which you exaggerate something, you know, that you're really awful. I think that's part of the, of the anger. You know, these emotions don't have to be so strong. They can get stronger. But I think it would be hard to delineate and put, you know, a, a plastic around it and say, you know, now this is happening and now that's happening. Right. Anyway, that is a large topic and I need to get to the airport. So, <laughs> uh, I think the, the conclusion from that is that it's very important to think about these things, to analyze. <coughs> You know, His Holiness Dalai Lama always emphasizes that uh, what's most important and what he spends the most effort on is analytical meditation, trying to figure out how all the different teachings fit together and how they apply and to try to make sense of everything and then familiarize ourselves with it, apply it. This is very, very important. So the more that we learn the teachings, the more pieces of the puzzle we're able to put together. And that's the whole adventure and excitement of the Dharma, is we get pieces of the puzzle here and there, and the more pieces we get, the more we can fit together, and they fit together in many different ways, not just one. So, have fun with it. <laughs> So we end with the dedication, we think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. Sena <laughs> 